0: who is an author from the Netherlands, but living in the U.S., author of many books, many of which I won't try to say the names of. I'm sorry about that. But two of those books have been translated from Dutch into English, the first called Playing Monogamy, and the other called Take Him Down, Scattered Monuments, and Queer Forgetting. The book we're here to talk about is their newest book, Against Ageism, A Queer Manifesto, which, full disclosure, I I had the privilege of helping with editing on, and so I've read it several times in different iterations of it, and I was really excited then to have this interview, have this conversation about how it turned out. And Simon, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is your first book that you've written in English. That's correct, yeah.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: Great. Uh, yeah. So welcome again. And, um, we can get right into it if you, if you'd like. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Although I should also thank you for uh, the amazing editing job that you've been doing on the manuscript. So thank you. My pleasure.
0: So I guess to start, I'd like to ask you to just explain a little bit about how ageism is generally addressed.
1: Yeah. And then, that will immediately lead me to how I am addressing it. Right. Um, I mean, unfortunately, ageism is not that often addressed, right? That's the first point maybe to make is that ageism is not that often addressed at all. The marker of age as a category of identity and how it shapes us within systems of oppression is not that often addressed strangely, right? Even in intersectional analysis, um, so that's maybe to start with, but then also age, ageism, the way that it's addressed is often um, mainly focusing on the discrimination of elderly or older people. So the discrimination that people face at an older age, before, for example, um, when looking for a job, uh, on the dating market, um, in terms of beauty standards, the way in which um, age is deemed something that one wants to avoid, as opposed to lean into um, the ways in which uh, youth is privileged over old, um, right? Not just in terms of beauty standards, but also in terms of mental capacity. And so often when ageism is addressed, it refers as to the ways in which older people are of value. So it's kind of this plea for like, no, but actually, on the in the job market or on the job market, they are actually really valuable because they have all these years of skills. Um, no, actually, we should be appreciating older people uh, and their beauty uh, for its own sake, right? So the binary between youth and and old or young and old is not broken at all. It's sort of the the value of those who have aged. Is communicated in opposition to what young supposedly has. So to sketch it out, right, that means that the young stays in its place, it stays in its static meaning of what it means to be young. And as opposed to like having um, old be some like oppositional minus in re- relationship to that, um, old is sort of propped as kind of like, no, there is value in being older. Um, So often ageism, when addressed, when, if at all addressed, right, um, it is focused on older people. And again, it doesn't question the category of age in general. I'll get to that, like how I relate age to how we think about linear time in general, right? And like how we presume that age is related to developmental stages and how that in and of itself is a problem, but... When we look at how ageism is often addressed so again it's it's focused on the elderly but it doesn't take into account that discrimination because of age happens at all ages it happens wherever age is present when is age present the moment that one is born into this world one is marked as having a certain age as being on a timeline right so we see this with babies they get born and they're mapped because of their age. If they grow a certain amount because they're so many months old, then it means they're doing well growth-wise or they're not doing great, right? They're continuously measured in that way. For me, my first encounter, and this is where I start the book. um, For me, my first encounter with ageism comes at a young age because yeah, we all deal with it whenever we have age, which is from the moment we were born. So um, I start with an experience of sexual assault at a young age. And the reason I do that is because at that age, I was confronted with the hypocrisy of being deemed, of saying that something is appropriate because of your age or not appropriate. By which I mean, as a young, white, feminized child, I was always told that I was too young for those things that I had already experienced. So having experienced sexual assault, I knew that one could have sex at a certain age, but at the same time, the message that I was getting was that you're too young for this. There's no way you could be having this. And so that was a confrontation with the ways in which for me, immediately it laid bare that the the normative approach to what one should be doing or should not be doing because of age is simply false and it doesn't resonate with reality and so for me i i take that apart as a as a start of like how to think about ageism not just at the flip side rather right, the other side of the being older but also being young and and being in between right um so anytime one has an age which is anytime one lives in this current world order, one is experiencing ageism.
0: Great. Thank you. Yeah. I'm actually, the the question of how one experiences ageism at a young age, I think opens up so many different things for us to think about. Um, in this book, you, um, you think about age in this relationship to protection. And there's two threads that I kind of want to think with you about, in ways that you open up us thinking about protection, the protection of the young, of the young white cis child, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's moving uh, multiple ways. The first one I was thinking of when you said that age starts as soon as you're born is what I was thinking through um, contemporary discourse right now around abortion in the United States and where age actually starts, mm-hmm. right? In the U.S., protection and therefore. Age is starting at like weeks at these very particular moments, right? And the and the war on that is being waged around like, um, yeah, mm. heartbeat weeks moments, right? And that and so so actually, interestingly, age doesn't age starts before you're born, yeah. right? At this point, I'd say politically, socially, even if the war, even though even if um, those of us trying to uphold abortion rights and claims uh, you know to abortion. And are um, fighting against that being, you know, that a pre-age could even be a protected class um, and that we would even begin to talk about it. We've lost that war, right? Yeah. Like as it is, ages before you're born. And that, and that leads me to kind of touch on a project I know you're doing, which is separate from this book, but all your projects kind of interrelate, which is a play that you just wrote on age, on, um, Abortion called fetus heaven is the loose translation correct? Yeah. yeah. So um, we can touch on that in a minute. So I wanted to think through this question of protection. The other thing I think that um, is really interesting that is is in fact in against ageism um, is this thinking with that protection, that kind of patriarchal family structure that's supposed to protect protect the child, the white child, as we know through, you know, critical race um, interventions into thinking how childhood um, manifests itself. But one of the things you think about is how, um, as a child who was performing like genderqueer, which we would say now maybe, or, you know, you wouldn't have said that at the time, but presenting abnormally outside of a normative uh, gender (laughs) possibility, you you at also at a very young age felt that you had brought on shame to your family right mm. your your guardians the protective parental figures were then um not they were either allowing you or they um were you know the conservative point mm-hmm. would be um not just allowing but like um influencing you mm-hmm. out of these normative structures right and so you as a as a child then decided for yourself and you kind of write through an agentic lens to think about this um, seemingly decided like no i want i want this right so Mm. um so that kind of claiming your own consensual relationship Mm. to life which you know legally at least in the united states 18 that differs in different places um, is is actually like a kind of a philosophical worldview you take on to just to to make sense of yourself in relationship to this like failed protective mm-hmm. structure. Um, yeah. Do you have more you want to?
1: Yeah. I mean that's super super interesting. I'm I'm really I'm I'm trying to think about how to to respond to that. So it's going to be a failed response, which is great. Um, which means that it's a great question. I think for sure the abortion and the idea of them the sort of age starting before one is born, um, which for me immediately ties in not just to the theater play that I wrote in the Netherlands, uh, The Fetus Heaven, right? Where these questions come up, but it ties in with the legalization of linear time. So the fact that one thinks that then can draw a linear line through the life of someone, an individual not just an individual that we see but also the fetus. right this idea that one can draw a line and put them in time and i think that's something that i've been obsessed with quite a for some quite some time actually like that's also in the book taken down scattered monuments and queer um, forgetting resonates and 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 is driven by this question around time right like what are the ways in which time maps are live and in relationship to your question about protection what are the ways that one when one falls off that very slim line of that mapping of time uh one is either criminalized um may like erased right like all of these ways in which um the the framework of inclusion happens. You're still in it, you're still implied, but you might be excluded and you might be portrayed as utter, right? And age works in that same way. I think in regards to abortion, this question of legalization immediately also comes up, right? Is in the ways in which, in, in what ways has age been in what ways has the notion of age developed in re- in relationship to this kind of legalization, right? On one hand, one could say like, okay, the notion of the child came up in the industrial revolution in relationship to labor rights. So there's a lot of ways in which we immediately and cannot, in some ways, we cannot disjoint age from its its sort of legal not just its actual legal quality, but its, its legal affect. By which I mean, indeed, like you're saying, protection, right? The fact that it has, it brings us to, the, to this feeling of something needs to be protected here. When we're holding on to, right? Like the moment that somebody said, like, what if we didn't have lives where age played any value? What would it look like? And then people would be like, yeah, but biologically you age. And you're like, yeah, there's other ways to address biological, and I'm making air quotes here, age. And this is maybe also where in the book I'm going into disability studies, right? Where this idea that we know what aging looks like and how it relates to one's abilities is completely false when looking through a disability lens, right? Because we have so many different forms of bodies and we have so many different forms of abilities, that age is just a normative marker that doesn't even resonate with reality, right? And um, the fact that, you want to say something? Yeah. The fact, so the fact that age brings us to this legal feeling, you know, um, has to do with this quality of protection, right? Like it has to do with the feeling like, no, we could not do without age. And here you see immediately, right? Like, Or here, when listening, you immediately hear how it resonates and intersects with all of the other markers of identity that we think we cannot do without. But once we're in it, we're so deeply stuck in it and so deeply confined by it. And in relationship to this, so when I'm saying I'm I'm sort of circling around it, right? But like this, this legal affect or this legal feeling around age, well, coming back to this idea of like labor rights, we think we need to protect a child because of a rights discourse, um, and I question that. <clears throat>
0: totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we see roll, rolling back of the those legal structures happening right now, at least in the U.S. context. I'm sorry, I keep bringing the U.S. context. It's just where I am and where I've been doom scrolling for the last few months, years, lifetime. Um, but it is interesting this question of labor. I really like thinking about the child the the figure of the child the um, yeah the conception of the child coming up in relationship to labor, you know the rights of children to not mm-hmm. work, and then the fighting the c- contemporary kind of fight against ageism um, taking place in response to the elder being allowed to work yes. right so um you know if you're not able to work till you're 15 or 16 legally um, you know you you should be then allotted the like respect of having the ability to labor well into your 80s now right I mean look mm-hmm. what's going on we can move out of the U.S. context for a moment right they're pushing the the um, in France or another retirement age excellent yeah. excellent images coming from um, the streets burning and in, in response to the retirement age. Yeah, so this question of labor is like um, very poignant. I think when I read this when I was editing it a year ago, I was thinking, Oh, this is so interesting, you know, and, and I've seen so many different themes sort of come to the surface around protection. We're seeing this also with trans children in the US, right? The the rhetoric of the protecting of the child. And it's very specifically how you name protecting the white cis child, right? The protecting the gender of the child being within a normative framework. Um, That that temporary fight was heating up, clearly moving, but I couldn't have known at the time that I was reading this book first that by the time it would be coming out, we'd be in such a huge fight around protection Mm. of the child. So, um, yeah, so it's really poignant to think about this thing. And and you're right. Um, What's interesting to me about Against Ageism is that you are trying to unsettle all of these normal normalized categories mm-hmm. of age, right? Because the fight then becomes, we're fighting on the level of discourse, but the discourse is staying the same. Must protect the child, must protect the child, must protect the child, must protect the child, protect the trans child, protect the trans child, right? And I think we've seen this time and time again in this kind of like rising fascism in the U.S. context specifically. Um, protection becomes... Or the discourse, if the discourse is the same, we're often losing on the level of discourse. I would say we def- that's definitely true of the abortion. Mm-hmm. I, right.
1: Yeah, the, you know what it makes me... I mean, I also realized that you had another question posed earlier around the agentic lens and consent. So I'm going to try and tie those two in in some ways because something that you said made me think about how... Um, and, not, and not to bring everything in, right? But like how for me something that you gave me was just realizing how most of my work tries to follow an anti-work agenda which is a weird sentence to say right like as a work addicted person being like having like an (laughs) anti-work agenda my work is about anti-work but um you know this is of course not it's not about work as in writing books that nobody buys it's about work uh, in relationship to the economy and, and and what is proposed as thriving. And I think for me, and I'm looking at like Take them Down, Scattered Monuments and Queer Forgetting where I propose not just monuments that supposedly commemorate history in different ways or like treat history different altogether, but monuments that fully interrupt the flow and ongoingness of the present moment. So not monuments that help us stand still for a moment, but monuments that fully stalled the current moment and not being afraid of that. That is kind of part of the argument and take them down. And I think for me age, right? Like when we talk about the, the rights of the child, and the protection of the child through saying like okay below 18 for example one cannot do certain things one does not have agency right we are also talking about voting rights for example and it's all proposed as a kind of protection even beside the things you were mentioning around like trans children on this current moment and the and the, the securing of white um, cis futures um, um, somebody like Cato or Catherine Clune Taylor also writes about this right um, the thing is right that protection lives. In, Like you were saying about the discourse, it lives in deep relationship with the places that we do not protect. So protecting the child from labor means to say, okay, you get a certain amount of time before you have to enter the labor force. Because we actually know how deeply exploitative and extractive labor is organized. And so we're protecting you from that or against that. And so instead of extending the rights of the child and saying like, okay, you get a few extra years off of exploitation. For me, the question is, of course, okay, so then labor should not exist at all, right? Or the way or heterosexuality should not exist at all. Because if we're saying that, oh, you as a young, white, feminized, cis child should not be having sex, because we know that the violence of the heterosexual life that you will live once you're old enough, once your dad gives you away at the altar, we actually know how violent it is and therefore we wanna protect you as a child from that or against that, then why not abolish it? (laughs) Abolish the heterosexual life that you're eventually gonna be leading altogether, right? And that draws in for me around your earlier question around the agentic lens. So what I indeed try to do is um, I call it almost like a trans reading of a moment of sexual assault early in life where I'm saying, look, I know that this has happened and I know I was in certain terms, I was a victim of this happening. However, how I have lived with this experience for Multiple years now, decades. I have felt a kind of agency around that memory because, first of all, it's my memory. I do not know that. I don't. I don't know the other. Like I don't think about the other person. It's. I experience it from my position. There might have been some dissociation. I don't know. But like, the only thing I have access to is my own narrative in it. And so from that, fr- and maybe this is also tied to like having agency, right, in in creating one's own narrative. Uh, By writing, for example. Of course, like this is not disentangled from privilege at all. But I'm writing really about my own experience. It's not saying anything about what other people should feel around their assault experiences. And I'm saying, okay, I had this experience of agency. I even think that I had access to feelings of desire. One could pathologize these feelings of desire by saying like, yeah, you just wanted attention or you know, if somebody had else, some, like a parental figure had given you attention, it would have been different. You can do all that. But I'm saying, no, I'm staying with a desire. And for me, as a feminized child, feeling desire for something that I might not have been allowed access to was a form, was in some ways a proximity to masculinity that I did not have otherwise. Again, I'm not saying masculinity is inherently agentic or desirous or etc. but it is how it is framed. So for me having proximity to saying, I had desire in this, I had a kind of agency in this, is a way of reframing um, the assault through a reading that is more messy than the sort of binary predator victim um, and that also gives us a a hint or something. It gives us a, a glitch of what it can mean to experience without that binary, without having to choose between either or. That is one thing. The other thing that you mentioned, um, in relationship to, um, Childhood, shame, parents um, is around consent, right? And I think this, I'm just riffing off on the same question around the binary. Um, for me, the question around consent is, especially in queer spaces, we see a lot of like attempts towards healing, saying, like, oh, we just need to learn how to practice consent. We get consent rituals, even. Um, and you know, like we'll practice with consent by saying like, can I touch you? Yes, you can touch me. Can I touch you? Right? This back and forth of exchange. I'm not against those interpersonal moments and I understand the need for those practices. I am, however, questioning consent as a solution when the conditions of possibilities that consent drives from are left unquestioned. If you can say yes or no, if you can say what you want, within the current framework, there's no way that it's not gonna reproduce or produce violence. Because the conditions of possibility that are in this moment are shaped so deeply by violence that the idea of consent being a way out does not unsettle, to, to use the word they were using. The frameworks through which we are able to access consent does this make sense or should I back up somehow? I don't know.
0: Well, I, th- I think it makes, I, yeah, it makes sense. But one thing I'm curious about if, if you could draw out a little more um, is how cons- consent, if it is upholding the same categories that reproduce violence or are violence, um, the conditions of possibility, um, if it doesn't unsettle that, how then does agency unsettle that? Does that make sense mm. in some way? Like, um, I'm curious about the difference in this particular example or um, in in various examples that you, you bring throughout the book, um, how agency and consent kind of function as different
1: mm. categories. Yeah. I think partly, so the way that I refer to consent is in relationship, of course, partly to this sort of Queer attempt of using consent to heal violence or to counter violence, and the ways in which it as an in, it is claimed as an interpersonal potential, which takes it out of the legal framework, which could be an interesting reclaim. I think it might be problematic, simply because of this legal feeling that I was describing before. Right which is that we have not been able to detach ourselves from the idea that the legal will not protect. The legal will not bring justice. And so by already reclaiming or something uh, the interpersonal ritual of consent, I think we are forgetting a step around how we are affected by legal feelings and thinking that we find somehow a kind of justice an interpersonal just situation, which takes away the failure of the individual. It doesn't. It doesn't take in account the absence, the actual absence of the subject, right? It fully. I, it fully has the idea that um, there are two subjects that are approaching each other and can meet each other and hear, hear each other, and that they are in the same language. Which, of course, the reason why I consent in some ways flourishes so well. In the US Empire, is because it, it, it requires a hegemonic language. Anyone who's in an interlingual situation for like daily survival knows that these things will be messier than that. So that is the interpersonal ritual of consent among queers, right? And I'm writing against ageism also partly in response to my relationship to queer spaces. Because also in queer spaces, I also write, for example, about an intergenerational relationship uh, where my partner, um, now ex-partner uh, or other f- previous partners are m- multiple decades older than me and how we have been like on the street. We've, we are approached as mother and child um, in most spaces, but also in queer spaces, um, the lack of embrace or the lack of understanding of having intergenerational intimacies and not using language of like, um, and sorry, I'm going to back up a little bit, not having intergenerational intimacies in queer spaces, but not just that, also having young queers completely distance themselves from pedophilia, which is a form of, I understand that, right, that has a a history that's super understandable in the 70s and 80s and the way that, um, was it, Uh, Sorry, I'm just trying to think of the American name. It doesn't matter. Um, The ways in which LGBT life has been conflated with pedophilia, it doesn't go just back to the 70s and 80s, right? It's it's ages and ages old. So I understand the need for distancing oneself, but another measure of protection is happening there. And so the ways in which queers take over a lot of right-wing language saying like, oh, pedophilia, again, I'm not pleading for it. That's not the issue in here. It's about what slippery slopes are we allowing ourselves to roll down on in order to protect oneself as opposed to, right? So for me, against ageism is written also in relationship to my frustrations around queer queer language, queer discourse. Um, The other aspect is consent in relationship to actual legal frameworks. Um, so again, in the interpersonal, the legal is forgotten in the legal framework, like how we see the response, um, to me too. And I know you have written about this and have created also an exhibition, take back the fight, which is in some ways, right? I mean, you should probably say it yourself, but how I have understood it is, um, about what happens in the aftermath of me too, and how to not have carceral approaches to is that how history it is?
0: well it was a exhibition i uh, co-created with some folks at interference archive and it actually came out before me too so we were already for the year or two prior to that uh, that move that hashtag movement starting thinking already about the histories of anti-carceral approaches mm. to sexual assault ways to address harm specifically the harm of sexual assault in various communities across the u.s again um but also actually we were able to kind of expand that exhibition um to north america thinking through some um latin american examples of um, anti-carceral approaches um yeah that exhibition so it was pre-me too but it became hyper it 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 launched right as me too launched (laughs) so uh, by happenstance, so it became um rather rather relevant within that moment yeah
1: yeah, and, and and apologies for reproducing the relevancy in that sense of Me Too, right? That it swallows almost the history of this exhibition and project uh, way before Me Too. But I think, right, one of the things, um, one of the things that brings us to right is like how the institutional response. Uh, okay, sorry. When you're saying right, like it launched at the same time as Me Too. Of course, when we're looking at this, it's the institutional like the institutionalization and the institutional response to sexual assault that becomes of interest because there's no way around it for institutions, just as we see this happening with diversity and inclusion work, right like the encapsulation of of the institution of these very valid and real uh, calls to attention um, and so, so part of like what I'm writing about is in, in relationship to this sort of carceral response to, um, to uncertainty in some ways. So one of the things that I write about, um, I just arrived a year and a half ago in uh, Berkeley, in California, starting at the UC Berkeley. And everybody who is employed by the university has to do this test. Uh, I mean, I'll call it a test. I'm sure they call it an awareness prompt or something like that. Training, I believe. Training, yeah, Um, where you have to literally, with multiple choice questions, you have to uh, signify or designate whether the situation that is being described is abusive or not. And so everybody has to go through the same training. Um, So that completely conflates or like it, it completely disintegrates differentiation. The fact that actually the reason why this shit shit happens is because there is difference that is stalled in power relationship, power hierarchies. So by completely negating this difference and saying like everybody should do the same test on sexual assault because we're all prone to, prone to what really though? Really? Are we really all prone to it? Like, are we really all prone to power abuse when we're not in the same position? And so I'm thinking a little bit with that. I'm also thinking about um, Guy Hockenham and Michel Foucault uh, in 1973, having a radio interview in France about, and it's it's transcribed, you can find it on the internet, it's transcribed as the sexuality of the child. And I always thought that this conversation was a kind of plead for pedophilia. Um, I had never read it, but this is how I had heard about it and then reading it i realized it was actually it's a complete the conversation is completely against criminalization and they're warning us for the dangers of of tying sexuality to prohibition or to um any form of legal response basically they're not at all glorifying or romanticizing pedophilia uh, at least in my read um, but what they are warning for is that the, the pedophilia scare in the 70s, in this case, um, leads, for example, to the incarceration of a teacher who decides to uh, provide condoms in his class, right? And and then that makes him into, of course, he's accused of pedophilia um, by providing um, uh, sex education, I guess that's what you could call it. And I I realize I'm completely not responding to your question about the differentiation to agentic and consent, um, but I did think it was important to map out more around like what I what the problem of consent is. So to continue a little bit on, on Foucault and Guy Hockenheim, and I'm probably saying it wrong for those who speak French, um, but what they're saying is that. By, by having an age of consent, right, what happens is that the voice of the, actually we're getting to agency here, what happens, thank you, uh, what happens to the voice of the child is that it's completely erased. So imagine a situation in which there's a, a teenager with an adult and in, it's brought to court, the, the voice of the child cannot be heard because of the age of consent. Because of the age of consent, so if somebody is not at the age of consent, so somebody is 11, for example, then it doesn't matter what the child says. The child might say, but this is what I wanted. It does not matter legally, right? Because of the age of consent. And so what Hockenham and Foucault are saying is like, wait, if we have these kind of legal measures, what happens in the process is that we do not take the child at all serious. So the idea that the child has certain desires, which again, it does not in any way excuse the behavior of the person in the power position, the person, the adult in this case, they're not even talking about it. They're problematizing what it does to the child when legally we silence the voice of the child by saying like, it doesn't matter what you say because age of consent. And it is here, I think, that That agency comes back in, as to your question, which I would actually love to think much more about. I don't believe in agency in the sense that I do not believe that a subject has individual agency. What I do think that this example shows us around the age of consent and the erasure of the child's voice is that the notion of childhood is so deeply implicated by white patriarchal power moves, which comes up in this sort of saying like, we need to protect the child. I know what's best for my child. The idea that parenting, right? Parenting is a form of coercion. And I don't think consent is the answer to it. I don't think that being a parent and saying like, do you want this darling? Is the solution. I think you have to start with saying like parent, if you choose to be a parent or you don't choose that, I understand that there's not always a choice. That's not my agency that I'm saying. I'm not saying there's always choice. It's about like being a parent in and of itself is a violation of understanding the child not as property, not as something that needs to be protected. Right? Like, and how that, then, how that ties in with like, okay, I'm from the Netherlands. I'm, I grew up in a deeply colonial country, but that was like able to like export colonialism in so many ways the idea of raising and educating someone for me just deeply resonates colonial. And it's not just for me, obviously, because I cite a lot of people and I think it's there where the, the level of protection and the child come in. Right. Yeah, no. And
0: yeah, that makes sense. I also think one of the important examples that you're drawing from in your book that you haven't mentioned here is QAnon's obsession with pedophilia, which we see You know, again, the relevance of these of this discourse that you're touching on has like accelerated in such a way as we see that particular protective measure, that measure of warning, um, which I think Hockenham and Foucault are also talking about. um, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing, right, Um, but are also talking about in that they are thinking about protection um, or they're thinking about criminalization and specifically the qu- criminalization of queer men, mm. I think in their, mm. in their moment, but of, of queer gay men of a gay subject. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, and like, look at the drag conversation in the U S right now, as we see the way they like QAnon obsession with pedophilia, which you point to in this book as the sort of like hail, like, we can't talk about pedophilia and we see our discomfort right in in this conversation even of trying to think through this question and be like we're not making a case for pedophilia mm-hmm. we're not making a case for pedophilia we're not making a case for pedophilia but also um we are thinking with the terms that are out there constantly and depending on who's saying it and how much they uphold the status of proper protector which as like queer people, trans, a trans person in the world, right, Um, you don't get to uphold that status as protector. And that is how the discourse is moving, right? And that's kind of what you're looking at, you're starting to look at that. Mm. Um, You know, I remember you saying to me when I was talking to you as an editor in that part of the book, you saying something like, I know you're, (laughs) you American with your like, you know, I grew up in a very conservative part of the United States, Arizona, and I have, you know, so much bodily discomfort with a lot of the, the subject matter in this book in a good way, because it really challenges me to think about things. But, you know, when I was talking to you about that, you were like, yeah, but QAnon is saying pedophilia constantly, like, would do they, do they own the terms of how this discourse is moving? And who is going to be, you asked me, who is going to be criminalized for pedophilia? Mm. It's not them. It's not like the protect, the hyper protective, hyper masculine white masculinity, who we know to be often the Catholic church, um, the like perpetrator of pedophilia. Mm. Right. But instead we, you know, we, we have these ingrained. And this is what I mean by um, a particular discourse being owned in a particular way. Right. Mm. And how I read ageism as, as upholding this who gets to be the protector who gets to own the discourse of protection so not just the protected class of the child but protection all around and who gets to say who's going to then be the most um the the criminalized class right and we have a lot of of folks working on this when it comes to race racism criminalization when it comes um to yeah to race and and gender, but not so much around age. So it's, it's a really, Mm -hmm. you know, interesting kind of extra layer added to that thinking. Um, This brings me to, um, or maybe we, you know, (laughs) did you want to respond to that or should we move into? No, please go ahead. I I guess one thing I wanted to think with you about kind of maybe moving out of the heavy and into something a little Mm -hmm. bit lighter (laughs) um, is how, you construct the book. So the book is a series of um, chapters that are kind of separated vignettes, but also um, I've heard you discuss it as like a very non-monogamous citational practice, right? You don't adhere to an academic citational practice, although you do cite Mel Chen and other academics who, you know, are very popular in academic citational practices and also like you know, really invested in an, ap- in an academic discourse. You also cite your own experiences, your intergenerational romantic relationships, your own, ex- you know, your own kind of like anecdotes, along with a lot of other mm. kinds of citations. So I'm just wondering, and and you, you draw the citation, you draw mono- the non-monogamous structure from your earlier work with playing monogamy and thinking, which is you know primarily about non-monogamous and romantic relationships within. Mm expands out so i guess i wanted to ask you a little bit about that writing practice and that citational um you, you mentioned your citational practice earlier so i wanted to ask you a little bit about
1: that yeah well it's definitely a practice of infidelity and i think that infidelity immediately relates to this question of protection not to go back to the heavier but you know it's always there which is this question what, what made me i wanted to shout out when you were speaking i wanted to shout out So stop, dear queer kin, stop stepping into the role of protector, even of yourself. And because this is what we're forced to be doing in this binary rhetoric in this current moment where yes, we are losing, but also like, are we gonna win by protecting ourselves? In this rhetoric, we're gonna continue to be in that, right? We're gonna be, continue to be confined by that. And so when you refer to non-monogamous citational practice, um, yes, it's infidelity. It's um, a desire not to be protected by a discipline, a field, a certain way of speaking. Um, that does not mean that I don't have insecurity sometimes about which terms am I using because if you're not following a certain lead of a field, you're most likely going to use certain words wrong, right? And, and you know, the size effect of English is my second language. Um, Of course, it comes from a kind of privilege, by which I mean infidelity is easier when one has a kind of security around having access to different disciplines and different theories and different work, um, not having to prove oneself necessarily in one field. Um, But I think I'm just going to sort of centralize the infidelity around it now, (laughs) And um, the privilege of, um, I would call it a privilege of not being confined by academia. And I did have the privilege as a, as a, as a Dutch writer or somebody in the Netherlands, uh, I, my first access comes from uh, writing for a larger audience. I have been writing columns for a large um, national newspaper in the Netherlands three times a week. Um, where I was employing theory in some ways into these personal narratives. Um, And my Dutch books are all written uh, for a public audience. I don't know exactly how to call it, but a non-academic press in that sense. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else for me to say on that. Um, Mostly I was thinking more more theoretically again about you mentioning Mel Chen, for example, who I cite on their work on animacy. Um, which brought me to the question of race and age. I don't know if we want to delve into that, but I do think that the argument that I make, um, and for those who are listening, Lani was nodding. Um, the argument that I make around animacies by Mel Chen is around how age is not just, how not just is it so that this question of who has access to time comes up. Let me back up. Who has access to time? When, and the Black Quantum Futurism, for example, collective, the Black Quantum Futurism collective points to this, right? When one lives in the inner city and can afford to live there, it takes maybe five minutes to your workplace. When you're pushed outside, so when the city is gentrified and you're pushed outside and you're living in the suburbs and you have to take an hour and a half um, subway ride or bus to your work, you're robbed of time who has access to time. And Jackie Wong, who I also cite, um, talks about incarceration and doing time, right? Incarceration is a form of doing time, um, not just one sentence, but also every single daily act is timed. Um, or whether, for example, you have access to email, which would shorten the time in which you could communicate versus having to write letters. Um, So time relates to race in such deep ways in this question of who has access to time. We know already, for example, from the work of Brittany Cooper, but many others as well, right? That life expectancy is racialized. Um, The life expectancy of black people in the US is lower than that of white people. Time relates immediately to age, right? If you have access to time, you have access to age, so for example, when it considers um, the age of voting, um, I relate it to this question not because I think that voting is going to help us anything, but when we say we live in a world where voting matters, then at the moment that we put the the limit or the starting point, I sorry I don't know exactly how to say. it, uh, at eighteen, those who have short have a shorter life expectancy are robbed of votes, quite literally, right? So that's how I point to um, uh, time, age, and race. The other aspect in relationship to Mel Chen's work animacies is around the ways in which non-human materialities are racialized. Um, so. Mel in their book talks about toxins and um, racialization, right? So at some point, uh, for example, in the situation of uh, Flint, Michigan, where the water is contaminated, and this is brought in relationship to those who are, are affected, who are mostly Black Americans, there's a conflation that happens between the idea of contaminated water and contaminated life. And so that's the NMC border that they diffuse, right? Is that to say that one as a human body can be protected from these material but non-human um, projections, the body cannot be protected from that. You're not, and here we come back in some ways to agency, you're not as an individual protected from the environment that you live in. Not just are you inhabiting toxics, Also in the media narrative, for example, you are brought in relationship to this, these toxins. So there is no way in which we could separate yourself from this. Age, something similar happens in terms of conflation. Um, the portrayal of age is so focused on the white body. Like just if you think of an image at the moment, right, like the the fear of wrinkles, the fear of graying hair, it all comes with a certain skin and with a certain hair type. So visually, there's a way in which age and whiteness are so deeply interrelated and it's not addressed enough. Um, And so, and of course, the fact that one expects to have access to age, right? Even with a retire like, you mentioned France and the retirement, uh, the 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 the, um, the uprise against the the, um, uh, the extension of the retirement age, right? It's not discussed that some people will never even reach the retirement age, and that some people are not just some people; these are usually black French people. Um, and so there's a conflation that happens between whiteness and age, and the ways in which age is understood as white that I'm pointing to in relationship to animacies. Totally. Yeah.
0: No, it's great. Um, This is just one thought that's uh, popped up for me. Every time you've mentioned the voting age, which Mm. you talk about in the book, and I don't think I thought about it when I read it first, but I'm thinking about it in this conversation, that in fact, the protection... Yeah, I mean, this time you said, like, people are robbed of the right to vote. And I remember that being something I was you know, very angry about when I was younger, uh, below the voting age, but, um, because I came, um, I can't, you know, right now we're celebrating the 20 year moment from when the U S invaded, um, Iraq and I was 17. And I just remember being so angry Mm -hmm. that I had no, no say or something, but so the voting age, the, the, um, which now I don't have the same feelings about voting mm. <laughs> an agency or something, but you know, as a young person um, who was demonstrably against that decision, but couldn't, but felt really kind of protect, you know, or yeah, stripped of my ability there or my, my voice, if you will. Um, and but the 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 not allowing certain ages to vote or certain races to vote right which we see time and time again and every time there's an election but also you know historically we can look at that in the arc of the of us um, or gender not allowing certain cla- like categories to vote isn't about protecting the child, like the age of voting. It's not about protecting the child, Mm -hmm. right? It's about protecting the state, right? Mm -hmm. So there's also the way that protection comes in and the state becomes, um, the protected Mm -hmm. class or the protected space. And I think there's something to be thought about. I mean, it's, you know, moving forward, maybe there's something to to think about in, in the way that protecting the state is also protecting the amount of time it takes to discipline people. Into a politic that you want them to vote, right? Mm. So you have to, um, you have to force people to accept their exploitation to a certain level, and you need time to do that, or else mm. they will be unruly. They'll be un unruled, um, unable to be disciplined into voting the way that's you know the their the desirable Mm. direction or something. So that's just something to think on (laughs) as we move. But I guess uh, what that does do, if you think about, you know, what I did there is also thinking in a very linear time structure. And one Mm. of the pieces that's really interesting um, and upset in your book is a question of linear time. So you, you think through the black um, quantum futures collective and you think, through crypt time, is there anything that you wanted to kind of expand upon?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I think that's that's super fascinating what you brought up. i I want to respond to that, um, and I think maybe that will get us to like maybe saying something more about um, firstly is like this question of plasticity, uh, right? This idea that there's something to be um changed that there is a potential for change and that that change is always linear and progressive in some ways. Um, so the idea of plasticity in relationship to the child, which comes up, and I cite, for example, Jules Gill peterson around that, the history of the transgender child and the way in which the white child, especially, is still deemed to be changeable. And so therefore you see this, right? You see this in queer discourse again, protective discourse again, right? Like this idea, and I'm, again, you know, I'm not at all I'm not at all. Let that be very clear. Against medical access for kids to uh, trans healthcare at all. But what you do see is this idea: like you have to be quick. We have to be fast because the earlier we have uh, trans healthcare be accessible to trans kids, the less legible le- the less legibly trans they'll be at a later age, right? So there's a kind of fixing quality there that is happening around the plasticity, the presumed plasticity of the child. As opposed for for example, celebrating the fact that some things change differently. It's not that they do not change at a later age; they just change differently, right? And and not being able to perceive that comes in some ways uh, with this kind of ageism. What you said about the state educating ones into its own one's own exploitation in some ways it needs time for that. Right? It needs to train you in such a way that at 17 you think you can change the world by reaching 18 so that you can vote, as opposed to already having practice with the fact that you cannot change the state by voting in its own system. Right? I think that's super interesting, and I think it relates also to this question of plasticity because of how boys will be boys, by which we mean white boys will be boys, meaning that they get access to childhood way longer than for example, uh, black teenagers who are treated as adults in the, in, the, in the criminal system and not in the juvenile system, right? Um, and of course, we've seen this discourse of like, boys will be boys at all times. So again, this question of who gets access to childhood, not always the legal framework, right? It's not always, oh, beyond 18, one is not a child anymore, no. An adult man at 58 can still be a child or, be, or have access to being demanding to be treated like a child. Another aspect, right, of infantilization. So this is all about like, where does one have access to childhood as a framework of one's own protection? Another aspect I address to, for example, is um, uh, the infantilization of older people. Right. Um, So, for example, I have there's a chapter there that's called fuck your racist grandma, which refers to a T-shirt an artist made that says fuck your racist grandma, which is this idea of like, oh, I will not tell my grandmother that what she just said, of course, is also gendered. What she just said is racist because she might not be able to handle it, which or, for example, coming out, right, this idea of like, oh, I'll not tell my grandparents that I'm trans because... They will not understand, which places the grand, which places the conservative point of view back in time, which is simply not true. Like you were saying, we are accelerating into conservativeness, so it's not back in time, but it comfortably places conservative point of view back in time, and tells us that we will naturally progress into something less conservative. It also completely, here we have the agency again, it completely infantilizes. And it, it, it portrays the idea of infantilization, right? This idea of like, oh, they cannot handle it. Um, immediately in relationship to a kind of political linearity of conservative to progressive. Um, and so I guess that brings me to linear time in so many ways, which is that linear time serves the idea of natural and inevitable progression while the state, for example, (laughs) as you mentioned it, works completely against that, but with the veneer of... Like linear time holds up the veneer of progression while progression does not actually exist, right? And it maps it into time so that there's a way in which There's an inevitableness and yeah, there's a naturalness to it, which, you know, refers back to this question of like, how do we relate to history, past, present, and future? Um, If we map it on a linear timeline, we project our dreams, future dreams on a younger generation. How often do we hear people say about the generation that's coming after us, they will do it. And it's not just this passive approach, right? We see it, like, we see it among activists all the time. It's like, oh, the generation now, they know what transness means. Oh, they're not at all confused by they, them pronouns. Okay, great. Really, though? Like, really, though? What does that do? And I'm I'm not trying to, like, suck out the hope of that generation, but the projection of hope says something about one's own desire and... Against ageism for me tries to address all of these questions right among which it hopes to evoke the impossibility of using age for any form of comfort comfort right whether that is the comfort of saying like oh well the new generation the young the youngsters they're doing well they'll be all right the kids are all right yeah yeah no I think it's I mean I
0: think this question of upsetting linear time is so important to thinking through not thinking through a lens of sort of like well i've done i've done my time mm-hmm. as an organizer or something and now i can sit back and let the next generation lead the way um there's something seductive in it i'm not going to lie but it's not the it's not in, in any in any way taking any kinds of responsibility mm-hmm. for um the like we, we stir the pot and then just mm. let things settle on on someone else mm. or something. And I think, you know, I've, there's a couple of things I wanted to point out. One, if you're interested in this question of plasticity and intergenerational knowledge share, there, um, at, the, at the launch of this book in uh, Vancouver at um, Emily Carr University at the Libby Leschgold Gallery... J. Logan Smilgase and Yafna really also engaged with the book in this question of plasticity and fungibility and um, and intergenerational knowledge share and thinking how this book really unsettles uh, linear time with those things. So it's uh, just a reference to that video is available online if people want to get a little deeper into that plasticity question. Um, but yeah, the other piece that I, that I just want to respond to is that infantilization and, and the frustrations you feel. I mean, I think anyone who's cared for someone as they physically age, right. Sees this. I remember, you know, after my, my maternal grandmother, my tutu could no longer walk and I had to move her into, you know, her into a care home, um, for the physical care that she needed. Um, which had nothing to do with the kind of emotional care that we were, you know, that she could still garner for herself and intellectual care. And, um, people would, but I physically was carrying things, you know, She, she couldn't walk and people would come in and say, and, um, what time does your grandmother want dinner? You know? And I'd be like, I don't fucking know. She's sitting right there, ask her, you know? And, and I think this is this kind of conception also this infantilization um, that people lose the ability to make decisions for Mm. themselves, even the most simple ones. um, And they lose the ability to, um, they, they, they disappear. They Mm. literally disappear from Mm. there. So that frustration is something that um, I think, yeah, I, I have, um, speaking among other people who have done any caretaking work, you know, seen a lot of that. Mm. Um, yeah. Is there, yeah, mm. these are, those were the kind of things yeah. I thought of was in, that, in that last bit. Is there
1: anything else about this book that you'd want? I think, you know, that that is totally, that the erasure of the elderly, right? Like we started our conversation with saying that, okay, ageism is not just about the elderly, which is not meant... As an erasure again of the elderly, right? It's just about like ageism is the problem of age, and we should really, really be thinking about all the problems of all the ages and how age is used as a category. And even how that relates, right? When you mentioned linear time, somebody like Denise Farid da Silva um, thinking about linear time in relationship to spatial uh, mapping. So, the idea, for example, that when one points to a certain to the global south, for example, it says developing countries, that we are projecting not just an you know an individual timeline, we're projecting a timeline onto the map of the world. <laughs> and the map of the world in itself is a construction, right? Like so the way in which we spatialize time is really important. Also, you mentioned, of course, black quantum futurism. They say like all time is local. Um and I think I think that's really important to to continue to like not just think about time and, and like it, it installs rules on us every single day, not just when you're incarcerated, for sure if you're incarcerated, but every single day. Rules through time and through age. Um which can go as as easy as like, oh, that's not age appropriate, what you're wearing right now. Um to you know having to show up somewhere at a certain time, we, we come back to our anti-work discussion, uh, right? Clocking in, clocking out. Um, so the spatial aspect of, of time.
0: Um, I, I want to jump in and yeah. just say... Um... The, the, the point you brought up about developing the de- development as a progressive t- narrative around time, that's entirely forged through colonial time, mm-hmm. right? Entirely forged through these colonial and imperial relationships. We've talked a lot about the U.S. as center of empire. And I think the most incredible thing about this book, and that I hope people read, especially in the U.S. Uh, context, um, because I think or the U, U.S. Americas, the Americas maybe more broadly, um, you know, wh- one of your one of the folks speaking, uh, Yafna at the, at the launch said this book messed me up, you know, mm. in such an enticing way. But the reason this book messes us up, in I think, is that it ties every aspect of these questions of time. To these histories of violence that shape the very foundation of the discourse that we're speaking. And I mean, we talk about this a lot. I, you know, primarily only speak English. I move through the world as an English speaker. I move through the world as an American English speaker who does have a pretty solid grasp through privilege on a lot of discourse of US American English which then dominates kind of every conversation mm-hmm. and people are constantly having to shift into not just my language, but, you know, many layers of my language. And what happens in um, in this book and unsettling a lot of those qu- questions, I think, um, even though you wrote it in, in English, um, is it kind of forces us to think how to, to like in every aspect, Of the world from like the time, the way we structure our day, the way we constantly say these little ageist things, the way the pandemic has made everybody count time in a very particular way. Time has either slowed or it's sped, but everybody has gotten more comfortable aging in a framework that they imagine to be like more comfortable on the couch. Mm. Right. And that discourse that's dominating that this book calls into question how, how much it is the discord of the discourse of the center of empire and how that empirical understanding of time and age is then hoisted on people in to varying degrees mm-hmm. in different levels. Right. But the, the question of like, um, developing nation, right. As a framework that has a linear time progression that was entirely created through empire mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the stripping of resources. Right. Um, just shows how much
1: the the language mm. kind of dominates. This. Yeah, I think, I mean, I would lo- want to leave it at that because that's such a great way of framing the book. I also simultaneously, it reminded me of something to just point out is that there's also a lot of pleasure. And I don't mean that as in like, oh no, this is all heavy and therefore we need pleasure. It's just that being queer, <laughs> being a desirous subject in this role, right? Um, being able to even claim my own desire at such a young age, right? Like these are things that, that also come forward. And the reason that I mentioned that is because there is also a lot of uh, focus on, well, there's some focus on intergenerational intimacy and what it means to not desexualize people at a certain age. And I'm going to talk specifically about not desexualizing older people because we have talked about the other way around and how dangerous that is. So you know, from an adult perspective to an adult who's more adult or mature in linear time um, than I am. I think, you know, one of the one of the most beautiful moments in response to Against Ageism has just been like people coming, especially women coming up to me um, uh, and saying like, thank you for seeing me, which is, you know, that, that erasure is happening too. And I don't think that Against Ageism is necessarily focus so much on bettering the lives of contemporary individuals in the sense of like mm, it's not saying oh we should stop the discrimination of, of older women because they are beautiful too right this inclusion narrative but there is of course an embodied question which is that how much how much opens up when one does not unsee un here, on smell um, the sexuality, or not just the sexuality agency, etc., cetera, et cetera, of older people, um, of the possibilities of intergenerational intimacies. And of course, these possibilities are completely confined by nuclear family language, right? The fact that we see age through such familiar roles, desexualizes and I'm not saying everything has to be sexualized but it, it inherently desexualizes intergenerational intimacy and I also I do I do think against that um and one of them one of them, the things I end to book with is a poem by Cheryl Cheryl Clark the Johnny Cake which is about a younger person who has not experienced much death death in their life. Uh, learning something at a funeral saying uh, um, death frees people up for new experiences. And they learn something through an intimacy with an aunt um, uh, who's present at the funeral. And the reason I included this part of this poem, it's a very long poem. It's very sexy. You should definitely read it. Is because there's several elements present there that are negated and erased most of the time, because of the ways in which we think we, about age. So one of them is, of course, the presence of death and dying, not as something that is deeply scary and shouldn't be part, you know, should, youth should not be confronted with it, which is, of course, another erasure of experience of most people in this world um, who grow up in violence, who grow up in war, who grow up around death, right? Um, and again, so we see this, like, white approach, white European, Northwestern approach to what a childhood should look like. So that is not present in the Johnny Cake, But also the fact that the narrator, the speaker, comes with their friend and hooks up with the aunt, you know, who's among all these other aunties who all have a, fam- a family name, right, by saying like, oh, they're aunts, but they're not biological kin necessarily. And so like this messing up um, this messing up of this family language is really important for me the other aspect is that they have sex in not too explicit terms but in pretty sexy baking terms <laughs> um, kneading the dough and everything um, but that there is like a submission to learning and that there's an educational transmission that's happening not through age it's not that the aunt teaches the speaker something because the aunt is older than the speaker age doesn't really come forward at all it's by not having had a certain experience that one learns from somebody who has had a certain experience so it completely obliterates the necessity for age as an anchor to say this is something you need to learn or it, it obliterates the idea of a an, an linear exchange and instead there's like an atmosphere of exchange as opposed to a mapped out exchange yeah
0: yeah no, i love that i think that's probably a great place to end End with the desirous and the desiring <laughs> um thank you so much for talking to me about this book and for writing it letting me read it in its earlier stages and um yeah i hope i hope other people get a chance thank you so much Lani